0: I'm Joe Trotter. I'm the Giant Eagle University Professor of History and Social Justice at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. I am also the director of our Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy. I am originally from Voss Creek, West Virginia, which makes me also an African American Appalachian.
1: listeners this is Dr. Nkeshi el and we've got a new episode of the Black and Appalachia podcast for you so remember we told you all we were going on a road show through West Virginia and on up to Pittsburgh Pennsylvania well we did that road show and it culminated with a live recording of the podcast at Pittsburgh's August Wilson African-American Cultural Center on August 5th I hope you enjoy First ever black in Appalachia ROAD SHOW. This week marks the anniversary of the launch of our podcast. And we are super, super excited to be here to celebrate this moment with you all, to do our very first ROAD SHOW, to be for the first time in Pittsburgh, a.k.a. Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> We're so excited that you all are here. Thank you, thank you so much for coming out to this show. It's a crazy time to be doing podcasting in a pandemic and to try to do a live show. And so ask people to come out, so we really appreciate you all for being here and celebrating with us. Last year, we had a chance to talk to Pittsburgh's own Deesha Phil, y'all. Shout out to Deesha. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it was such a fun time, such a fun chat, and that episode was one of our most downloaded episodes of the podcast. And you know, usually our work sort of centers around central and southern Appalachia, but after talking with Deesha and having a blast, we were like... We got to get up to Pittsburgh
2: and see what's going on up there. And we wanted to see what other kind of black excellence was up here, too.
3: For sure. And, you know, speaking of Appalachia and, you know, the mountains, we heard that Pittsburgh is referred to as the Paris of Appalachia. Is that a real thing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Our producer, Chris, who's in the back and um, directing all the things, he always says that Knoxville is closer to Pittsburgh, in terms of culture, more closer to Pittsburgh than it is to Nashville. And we're only two hours from Nashville, but Nashville's not an Appalachian City. And so the more and more we're here, the more we're starting to see that, right?
3: Okay, that makes more sense. It's explaining the whole Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania reference. I got it now.
2: So before we get carried away, let's tell everyone a little bit about ourselves. Hey everybody! I am Dr. Nkeshi Alameen, sociologist of race and place, and Black Appalachian experiences. And I'm Angela Dennis, I'm a race and social justice reporter in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hey y'all! I'm Alana
3: Norwood. I'm a Berea College alumni and the community archivist for Black and Appalachia. And you're live at the very first
2: Black and Appalachia, Appalachia podcast. podcast. <laughs> black-
1: Okay, so, the Black and Appalachia podcast is a project of East Tennessee PBS's Black and Appalachia Project. And we have our director, William Isom, in the house, who's going to explain a little bit about what the initiative is all about. Come on, William. Come on.
4: Hey, you beautiful people. I'm the director of the Black and Appalachia Project. And the Black and Appalachia Project has been going on for about 10 years now. Anybody that's read anything about Black Appalachia knows that there was a book in the 80s by Dr. William Turner called Blacks in Appalachia and Ed Cabell. And so we named this project Black in Appalachia as kind of a nod to that and the people that came before us and did the work. We do documentaries, locally specific documentaries about the 8th of August, which is East Tennessee and Southern Appalachia's Emancipation Day. We've did documentaries about HBCUs and the atrocities associated with the Red Summer, and we're currently working on a series of shorts about lynchings in the coal fields. Also, in doing this work, we realized that there was a greater need, and we started to develop a community materials archive where we'd scan in residents' materials that they have in their homes and try to raise those up to researchable materials. And everything that we do is free and uh, available to the public. All of our documentaries, all of our research, all the work, the school records that we scan in are all available on the blackandappalachia.org website for free. We also do GIS work, uh, educational exhibition, and we provide support for archives and libraries in the region. And we can't do any of this stuff by ourselves. Nothing that you, you do that's worth a damn you can do by yourself, and so we rely on community partners. Other organizations, university departments, but most importantly, residents. Yeah, I'm getting out of here. So enjoy the Black and Appalachia podcast.
1: <laughs> so, the Black and Appalachia podcast grew out of this larger project as not only a way to get the narratives and stories of Black Appalachian people to the forefront and to be highlighted, but also to help to shape the region, right? To shape what we think of when we think about Appalachia. And to be a reflection and a representation of black Appalachian life for people who are from the region, people who have familiar ties to the region, and people who just want to know more about Appalachia.
3: You know, this is especially important for young Appalachians, like myself, who often don't feel like the area is a viable option to stay. Uh, So many of my friends have left the region because of limited job opportunities. The social and cultural outlets aren't really representative of our lived experiences. And then you have just the outright racism.
1: And we know that this is something that's also being experienced in Pittsburgh. We heard that over the last 10 years, Pittsburgh has lost a huge number of its black residents.
2: And just to give you all a little background on how the Black and Appalachia podcast started, we were one of a few public media stations selected to go through an extensive training with Public Radio Exchange. And during those 20 weeks, we built the framework and our podcast and launched a year ago on August 8th, which is also Tennessee's Emancipation Day.
1: Our podcast is a chat-style podcast, so it's usually a couple of hosts um, having a conversation. Uh, We tell historical stories. We tell contemporary stories. We tell stories that bridge the historical and the contemporary. We're usually challenging misconceptions about the region, and we're highlighting black people in places throughout Appalachia. And we do all of this, y'all, while having a good time. So, you'll hear some laughs, and you'll hear some inappropriate things at times, and some appropriate <laughs> things at times, but we usually have a good time.
2: All right, all right. Let's get back to
3: Pittsburgh, the whole reason why we're here today.
2: So, Pittsburgh is completely new to us. So we did a couple things. A part of coming on this Roadshow was to listen and to learn, and so we're really excited to be here with all of you and just learn more about black Pittsburghers.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as we are listening and learning, we also want to acknowledge our audience. Again, thank y'all for coming out in the middle of a pandemic when things are getting worse um, to be here. So we want to shout y'all out and give you a chance to rep your city. We're going to do a little call and response kind of thing. We're going to ask some questions. You want to give us some responses and uh, we'll go from there. So first, we want to know what neighborhoods are represented in the house tonight. Where are y'all from? L. H I double L. What else, who else, who else is here? What other neighborhoods are represented? Garfield. Garfield, okay, okay, okay. Any others? Lincoln, Lincoln? Limington. Lincoln? Lincoln, Limited. awesome, awesome, awesome. And what are the best places to eat here?
2: Mm. <laughs> your, auntie, yeah, your auntie's house.
1: <laughs> your auntie's house? Okay. We heard some, there's some barbecue wars going on yeah. between yeah. a couple of places. Yeah. <laughs>
5: between the Hill District and Homewood, I hear there's a new spot in the West End.
1: Soul, okay. f- soul
2: food? Yeah. Yeah. You're
5: not going me
3: in trouble. I <laughs> to say that one OK. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. But on a more serious note, where's the parties at?
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> mm? No oh, parties? Hold oh, up. Uh, OK. OK. <laughs>
1: OK. OK. It's a party here. It's a party right now. <laughs> what are y'all known for? Apart from the Steelers. <laughs> Steelers. OK. Black Artists. excellent. Yeah. Yeah, we were active civil rights um, leaders. Awesome. We were definitely, you know, just browsing the internet and we saw like a really vibrant art scene in Pittsburgh and that was exciting. What are black people at y'all? Where are black folks in Pittsburgh? Hill, Homewood, Wilkinsburg. Yeah. Shout out to Mayor Comins. Okay, okay. Awesome. North Side. Okay. And then sprinkles in other areas for sure.
3: Okay. Nice. All right, so when we were planning for this trip, you know, we wanted to know where the black people were at, but, you know, we also wanted to know where they've been, what they're going through right now, what their future looks like, and so much more. So to kick off our inquiry into Black Pittsburgh, we had a conversation with the Pittsburgh historian, Dr. Joe William Trotter Jr., who is the Giant Eagle University professor of history and social justice. He's also the director and founder of Carnegie Mellon's Center for African American Urban Studies and Economy at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Whew. That is a long title for an amazing man. We had a great conversation with him, and you'll hear what we learned from that conversation.
0: We have to get our history right, as much right as we can. And so, our approach here is to say, we've got to write the new history of Pittsburgh. It's an African-American history. We're not trying to write the whole history of the city, but the new African-American history of Pittsburgh, and we've got to account for the injustices that they endure it. But we also have to account for the way they built their own communities in the context of those injustices. Because this study is really about how black workers helped build the, the city—the big city, right? All of it. you helped to build all of it. How black people built their own black city, you know, inside the boundaries of a segregated society. And they were building. You know, some black Chicagos, black Philadelphia, black Pittsburgh, black Atlanta, black Durham. And And so I'm trying to put that piece together.
1: So, Dr. Trotter shared with us about his most recent research, which is documenting how Black Pittsburghers helped to build a city. But one of the things that he shared that really stood out to us was about the ways that Black folks create cities within cities. Despite and in spite of white supremacist structures that try to contain Black people in segregated spaces, in our communities, Black folks have found ways to live and to thrive. And this is true for Pittsburgh and Knoxville as much as it is for Chicago. But when we think about Black American life— Appalachian cities and towns are not the places that we think about. Matter of fact, when you think about Appalachia, black people and black places are the furthest thing from your mind. So, with Dr. Trotter's insights, we started thinking about black placemaking within Pittsburgh. We thought of the Hill City. That was the first thing that sort of came up. And so, that's our place of departure as we go forward with this episode.
3: The Hill District was historically African-American neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Beginning in the years like leading up to World War I, The Hill was the cultural center for black life in the city, and it was a major center for jazz. But despite all of these cultural and economic vibrancies of the city, in the mid-1950s, a substantial area was slated for redevelopment, and that ended up displacing about 8,000 individuals and 400 businesses. Yeah,
2: and to understand more about the Hill District, we've invited Ms. Marimba Malian, who is president and CEO of the Hill District Community Development Corporation, to be one of our guests tonight. And the Hill District CDC works together with residents and stakeholders. implement strategies and programs that drive community development opportunities in the greater district. So let's welcome Ms. Murma to the stage.
5: I was saying when I came in, this is the cutest crew ever. You are gorgeous. We'll take that. Thank <laughs> you. You all can't see me, but I can.
2: <laughs> so my first question is, can you tell us in the audience about the Hill District and what it was like before urban renewal and what's happening today? Sure. So, as you pointed out, the Hill District was the center for black
5: culture in uh, this region. You know, it was initially the landing ground for a lot of Eastern European immigrants. Italians, Armenians, Syrians, and then as African-Americans immigrated from the South and even before uh, then—which, you know, Martin Delaney's history is even connected to—the Lower Hill District and Authorsville and so forth. As white folks were able to access mortgages and to move out of, of that area, specifically the Lower Hill District, they did, and it became a predominantly black neighborhood at that point. Uh, It was always, you know, really quite centered on black culture. It's often the case that culture really had a major influence on the broader city's culture. You know, the city slated the Lower Hill District as a slum, as a part of the federally funded urban renewal efforts that were happening all throughout the country that destroyed hundreds of black communities throughout the country by building highway systems through those neighborhoods. And the Hill District, of, of course, was a victim of that displacing 8,000 residents, over 1,200 families, demolishing 1,300 buildings, losing over 400 businesses. So you can imagine the economic devastation that that caused to the rest of the neighborhood, which is in whole an 1,100-acre neighborhood. It's like a small town. The Hill District is huge, and it is all of the land between the Commerce Center of downtown Pittsburgh, which is where we are now, and the university district called Oakland, right? So it is the most valuable land in the city because it still has uh, substantial vacancy. And so the Hill CDC is focused on making sure that that development that does come is aligned with the community's vision for itself, which has been documented and articulated in a comprehensive land use plan called the Greater Hill District Master Plan that centers the redevelopment on building upon the African-American cultural legacy, which means that it's incredibly difficult and takes a lot of time to do, because, as you pointed out earlier, A lot of Black folks do not come home in this area, so that means that there is not a lot of Black wealth to do the kind of development, the economic development, that you would see in Black neighborhoods here in Pittsburgh and throughout the region. At any rate, we're really focused on making sure that economic development happens. We are really at the tip of the spear right now. There are a few both challenging and catalytic developments that are happening, and and our focus has been to assure community benefits which is very tough in a neighborhood like the Hill District because people are tired, right? People are at that stage where they're just like, I'll take anything. You know what I mean? And I'm like, it may mean you're displaced. And we have to be able to have that conversation or we have to be really creative in how we deliver solutions in our own community. So I'll pause there because I know that was a mouthful.
1: No, that's, that's all r- <laughs> really good. And, you know, again, I can't stress how much I'm seeing the parallels between what's happening here or what has happened here. And in Knoxville, we definitely—Urban Renewal destroyed Black neighborhoods in Knoxville as well. And, you know, it's kind of crazy how 50, 60 years later, the legacies of these processes are still devastating Black communities. And we talk around them a lot, but really, to get to the real work, it's been a struggle. You know, it's been a struggle. But I wanted to ask a little bit about some of your own connections. Are you personally connected to the Hill District? Did your family from the area? What sort of inspired your connection to this work?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. My father was born in Marietta, Georgia, and my mother was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. They initially landed in Brookline, but moved to Homewood. So, he spent, you know, a large part of his childhood in in Homewood uh, with my grandmother. And my mother came to Pittsburgh for school. Uh, for the University of Pittsburgh. They ended up meeting at the University of Pittsburgh and our co-founders, amongst others, of the Black Action Society at the University of Pittsburgh, and bought a apartment, an apartment here in the Hill District, uh, which is where my siblings were born, and then I was born in the home, our family home. So, I still live in the Hill District. I always say, if, if I'm in Pittsburgh, you'll find me in the Hill District. You know, it is the center of the city, and it is, I think, a true model of an empowered community that is being self-determinative about its future, with a whole set of challenges that come with that work. I want to be, <laughs> I want to be really clear that it's it's really tough work with a lot of different dynamics. Uh, right now, we're we're grappling with the reality that big capital has arrived in our community and the impact that that has on community dynamics and community relationships. It's like really interesting all of the you know all of the factors that are at play uh, in our neighborhood right now. And yet, I still think that this is the Hill District's moment.
3: I'm a community organizer myself. I really just want to know, like, what is the CDC and, you know, all of this stuff? Like, what are some specific strategies of addressing the displacement of black people in Pittsburgh?
5: Sure. Well, you know, fortunately, the Hill District is super active right? I always tell developers and government, like, do not come to the Hill thinking that it's going to be a Jedi mind trick. Like, it's not. Like, folks are going to be citing code, zoning code, <laughs> and, you know, city policies. and It's a very educated community, I think largely because of the amount of trauma and devastation that has c- occurred over generations. You know, after you see half your family displaced, you know, and going to community meetings year after year after year, generation after generation, you get a bit savvy about processes that oftentimes other communities are unfamiliar with. And so, I think that's a real advantage for the Hill District. And as a result, we collectively envisioned a comprehensive land use and quality of life plan for ourselves, which is modeled throughout the country as a community vision that, again, the first principle in the document is to build upon the African-American cultural legacy. Now, why is that important? That's important because we could easily say, we're going to build upon the cultural legacy of Eastern Europeans, right? Because they landed here. This is a very important community, historically, for the Jewish community, right? And so, you'll see synagogues that, you know, are no longer occupied in the Hill District. It was a very culturally diverse community. But the African-American community is the community that was unable to access the capital that they needed to grow and expand economically. It was the community that stayed and built and, and resisted and connected, right, and kept the community together, even if the buildings were coming down, which they absolutely were, which is well-documented by uh, Mindy Fullalove and Root Shock. And, you know, the impact that that has had on our community has been devastating. So I would say our master plan has been the primary aspirational document. But the tools that we have implemented and strategies have been, for example, the Hill CDC is in partnership with six other organizations in the Hill District that have appointed residents to a panel that reviews all incoming development, and they score all of that development against our community's master plan. If it scores 80 percent or above, it goes to the broader community, and every single resident has a chance to vote on that development plan. If it doesn't, you go back. It's pro-development but it's also pro-accountability. And that's the thing that people really struggle with. They, they don't necessarily struggle when you're willing to just have community meetings and, you know, just get the word out and market the plan. But when you bring in that accountability, it introduces a lot of tension to a development process. Sometimes if you have a developer who's not really interested in making sure that people are not displaced. We've really focused in on culture, commerce, innovation, and making sure that we implement programs, so we do artist residencies. We're in the process of over $80 million worth of development right now. We're building a 40-unit apartment for artists with long-term affordable requirements, 5,000 square feet of retail. We are restoring the historic New Granada Building right now, which is the Apollo of Pittsburgh. We are making sure that there's a food hall there that celebrates the African diaspora, so Jamaican, Creole, right? Soul food, like, it's going to be, like, that place where you can go get the best jerk chicken. I could get into, like, lots of different details, and I, I won't bore you with all of them, but I think that the things that are standout in how we prevent the displacement of black people is community review. We do a lot of policy advocacy. We do our work in three buckets. People, we build up the people while we build up the place, and we advocate for equitable development policies to make sure that we have systemic change, because we fundamentally believe that advocacy can and only should be plan B policy should be plan A and that it should protect the people. And so we spend a lot of time doing some of the policy advocacy as well.
1: I'm like, I'm, I'm eating it all up and I'm, and I'm trying to process everything that you're saying. And, and you know, one of the things that kind of initially stood out to me when we found out about the Hill District was that it was sort of linked to visit Pittsburgh. Initially sort of hit me that this is a top-down sort of approach. But I hear you saying that the grassroots and the community organizing still is important and so i'm wondering about how you are able to make that balance between the two right when we think about our city and what's happening in Knoxville we have community organizers underground you know sh- struggling trying to make something and there's a whole lot of pushback from the powers that be and also you're you're not trusting of them right it's never about the people it's always about what we can get how we can gentrify your community or whatever. And so, I'm really wondering about that struggle between the two and how that's working out, and and maybe even what have you all learned that maybe a city like Knoxville, where we're dealing with some of these things— Great question. Great
5: question. It is one of my greatest points of sadness and frustration in this work that we do not have more progressive policies to protect our most vulnerable communities, and particularly those communities that have undergirded, in many ways, the economic activity of our regions, which is oftentimes black people it is a frustration. Going back to the point that policies should be plan A, there should be policies. And in Pittsburgh, we do have what's called the Registered Community Organization Ordinance. So it is an actual ordinance that was passed a couple of years ago. This ordinance requires developers to go through a community review process to some degree. But it just depends on the community, right? Like, every community is organized differently. Some have, quite frankly, gentrifying community development organizations. You know, some have understaffed and under-resourced community organizations. So for the Hill District in particular, though, we have been really focused on that community review piece. I would say organized people and organized votes can really make an impact on individual developments, even if you don't have, for example, an ordinance that requires some review. And by the way, the ordinance could have done certain things like, you must meet these equitable goals. The ordinance doesn't do that, right? It just says you have to go, but it doesn't say you should go and you should have 30% MBE, or you should go and you should have 15 to 25% workforce requirements. So, so none of that stuff, right? So again, going back to How do we get the policies changed? But short of that, communities can be organized within and unto themselves and do that outreach directly to, you know, to developers, to stakeholders, to institutions in the area, universities. Those are always good folks to try to get on your side when you can, because, quite frankly, ongoing advocacy is not sustainable. There are so many issues layered on us—the personal stresses, a pandemic, right, folks? I mean, mental health is—you know, it it it, is—right, which is the intent right? It's just like, we're just going to wear y'all out because money is going to last longer than your energy. So it requires us to be a little more systemic in our thinking. And I think that we do have the capacity to build those structures. We've been talking to folks throughout the country about the community review process we've put in place, but I, I think that there are some mechanisms. You know, I, I, I know I can't get into all of them now, but I'm happy to talk in as much detail as possible.
2: I had one last question. As a reporter of race, how does media play a role with the Hill District? What kind of narratives have been out there? And, you know, can you tell us just a little bit about that?
5: You know, the great thing about doing this work for so long is your skin gets really, really thick, right? You just like, I mean, you know, folks going to say what they're going to say, right? Like you just kind of understand that's just what's going to happen. Doesn't make it right. And it doesn't reduce the amount of trauma that occurred for your skin to thicken. It does get you in the space where it's just like if somebody wants to come online and they do daily and call you a crackhead call you, you know, a shakedown artist because you're trying to negotiate a community benefits agreement, which, by the way, is one of the tools that every community should be using. If there is a development that requires public subsidy in your community, communities should be negotiating community benefits agreements. In fact, legislators can actually require that developers who are using a certain percentage of tax money must engage in equitable development that returns money to the citizens of that community. But oftentimes, The result is in the media, folks want to call you a shakedown artist, right? Because you are protecting your interests. In most cases, you're also protecting theirs because they don't ever have a stake in this big business. They are normally a a normal taxpayer, but in their minds, they have separated themselves from us in a black community. So, you know, prostitution, like they they're like, oh, you guys are just prostitutes, you know, and drug users like that kind of stuff is it's just really violent and vitriolic language that we find in our local newspapers. If you just go on the sites and look at that. As far as the broadcast media, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. That has not changed. I think since Black Lives Matter, of course—of course, we know they've always mattered in our community—since Black Lives Matter became an international movement, you know, we do get more inquiries into wanting to tell the stories of black people, but it doesn't quell or quiet the ongoing barrage of criticisms that come
2: in the way of black people and black organizers. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time out to talk to us this evening. And if there's anything you'd like to share with the audience? I'm
5: just happy to be here to, you know, share a little bit about the Hill District, share a little bit about blacks in Appalachia. This is an interesting twist. I, quite frankly, did not think of myself as someone in Appalachia. I mean, you kind of know cerebrally, but you don't really self-identify that way. So. So, I love that you are here, and uh, it also explains some of the racial dynamics and economic dynamics that we probably tend to isolate to Pittsburgh and or other cities who are grappling with it. But to put it in the context of some of the things you all have shared has been very helpful for me. So, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, and I am definitely interested in talking more later. Would love to.
5: All right. Take care. Thank you.
1: Thank (laughs) you. I think it's really important to understand the context within which black lives are lived and some of the structures that shape our lives. But I think it's even more important for us to think about the ways that black people respond to, transform, and just don't be studying these structures, right? So, I really appreciate you, Marimba, and the work of the CDC and all of the things that you all are doing to build black community. But we also want to look at young black folks and how are are young people building and creating and doing this sort of work in contemporary period. I believe especially that black creatives are a huge part, central in doing this sort of life-giving work. And so we want to definitely talk to and give voice to black creatives here in Pittsburgh. And so we wanted to talk to Daryl Kinzel, the founder of Boom Concepts, which is a a workspace and creative hub dedicated to the development of artists and creative entrepreneurs representing marginalized voices here in Pittsburgh. Help me to welcome Daryl, (laughs) y'all. Yeah,
6: yeah, 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 yeah. Peace, peace, peace. What's good? Spoken like
3: a true artist. Uh, it's so good to have you here today. Um, I'm going to be asking the first question, and it's very similar. Uh, so what is your connection to the Hill District?
6: Uh, my connection to the Hill District is I'm, I'm technically a displaced Hill resident. We're going to make it back, though. Shout out to big homie Marimba. i uh, born and bred in the Hill District. Went to all the public schools here. Uh, family born and bred in the Hill District. I just did the research before I came down here. My grandfather was born in 1933. Uh, He was born here in Pittsburgh on Center Avenue in the Hill District. His mother uh, was here probably about four or five years before he was born, so her late teenage years. So, yeah, we've been here for a long time, just had a little, little baby girl. She's three, so we're rooted. We're rooted in Pittsburgh and definitely down with the H.I. double.
1: All right. Awesome. Okay. So we want to talk a little bit about how black folks in Pittsburgh are bridging art and activism in response to these cycles of black displacement and other forms of racial injustice that communities experience in Pittsburgh. Can we talk a little bit about that?
6: You know, magic, mysticism, the good old August Wilson way. You know, we're all forged through August Wilson and um, organizations like Women of Visions here in Pittsburgh, black arts institutions and collectives that And individuals that, you know, whether they've stayed here, uh, whether they've gone and made an impact globally, you know, we're just trying to follow in the footsteps. And, you know, a key part of their practices was magic, making something out of nothing, which, you know, culturally we all do have done. Y'all here doing today, just trying to make it work. Thankfully here, there is like a huge philanthropic arm uh, where people can engage and uh, hopefully try to challenge power in different ways and make demands for like hard resources to support artists, creatives, and entrepreneurs. And then, you know, as everywhere, we're just working together. You know, we all gotta do a little bit better around that, um, you know, not really be connected to the, the one, the idea of the one in a place, especially a place that's maybe isolated from other arts markets or bigger uh, markets for sales and exposure. So, you know, we're better together and. That's how we making it work here.
1: Do you feel like that is something that people are buying into and, and sort of pushing forth? I feel like in spaces like ours, you know, like I said, I'm, again, connecting that parallel between Pittsburgh and, and Knoxville. A lot of times, black folks, whether they be artists or organizers, there's this, this sort of tension because of limited resources, lack of resources, or being ignored for so long. We get crumbs and we fight for the crumbs, or we treat each other poorly for these crumbs. How are, artists sort of responding in in that
6: light? Well, at Boom Concepts, we're just trying to show people and tell people that this is America. We're a country of abundance. Uh, We're a country of, like, overconsumption, so the money is always going to be there. You know, we don't have to fight over the crumbs. And, you know, thankfully through organizations, August Wilson Center here in the downtown area, you know, really those neighborhood centered places, Nefasi in the Hill District, Boom Concepts in Garfield, a couple other places around the city are just like really showing artists and working together to show that we can share resources, we could build power. And when we share power, that's how we're able to challenge and make some real change.
2: So my question is, uh, what do you feel the future is for young black creatives in in Pittsburgh?
6: More money, (laughs) more money, more opportunities. Uh, You know, you all being here is like a great marker. It used to be that Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania was so isolated and nobody would really come here, you know, which was like back in the day. Everybody would come here. It was a stop through on the way to New York or Chicago. We kind of lost that. Uh, there was a huge displacement. I mean, you know, like my in-laws, they ain't coming back if you paid them. If Google hired them, if, (laughs) you know, any tech company hired them, they wouldn't come back and they don't believe the things that are happening here. So, you know, we're really thankful that folks are coming, they're doing the exploration, we're getting that back, that cultural exchange with other cities, other small cities, other mid-sized cities, and just showing that there's a market here and people can test their ideas in other markets as well to make those connections.
1: For sure. Well, we thank you so much for coming out and sharing with us. We really appreciate it.
6: For sure, for sure. Thank you.
3: Listening to to Daryl speak about being a black person and creative and fighting the powers that be, right? I mean, I'm just really inspired right now, and it's amazing. As a young black Appalachian organizer and creative myself, And as Daryl pointed out, you know, art and creative expression is a way to fight back against oppression, right? And so I just wanted to, you know, kind of gauge the perspective of the next generation. We're gonna be bringing 17-year-old Anthony Wiles Jr. to the stage, one of five high school students from all across the country, who was named this year's national student poet. So for all of you all that don't know in the room, That organization identifies as the nation's highest honor for poet—for youth poets presenting original work. So, let's give Anthony a huge welcome to the stage.
7: Okay, hi, everyone. (laughs) Um, I'm Anthony Wiles, Um, as most of you all probably know. Awesome.
1: We are super, super excited to have Anthony. He's been following our work, and we've been following his work for some time. And (laughs) when we decided to come to Pittsburgh, it was the first person that we knew that we wanted to talk to. So (laughs) we're super excited to have you, Anthony. And we want to kick it off with the same question. How are you connected to the Hill District?
7: Okay. So actually, my family story is a bit different. None of my ancestors, when they settled here in Pittsburgh, settled in the Hill District. What's interesting, a lot of them settled in southwestern Pennsylvania, in Fayette, Somerset, and Westmoreland counties. On my father's side, then they came up to Pittsburgh. They settled in the West End, then somewhere in Manchester. And on my mother's side, almost all of them settled in Homewood and East Liberty. Now, both my parents are from the north side of Pittsburgh, and I actually live, like, outside of Pittsburgh in the North Hills. So, I don't have a— residential connection to the Hill District, but my great uncle, as I was telling you yesterday, uh, is Teeny Harris. He was an African-American photographer here in Pittsburgh. He was one of the only black photographers. He worked for the Pittsburgh Courier for about 40 years, but he had been dabbling in photography from the 1920s onward till he died in the 90s. I didn't get a chance to meet him, but he is personally one of my inspirations, and he's very well known here in Pittsburgh for documenting black life, specifically in the Hill District. But what a lot of people don't know is that he didn't live in the Hill District. He lived in Homewood, but he was born and raised in the Hill District. And he actually documented a lot of black life in metropolitan Pittsburgh. So, yeah, that's kind of like my connection to to him.
2: (laughs) So, my question being that you are a young person, what is life like for young people in Pittsburgh or young black
7: folks? Well, personally, I didn't grow up in— a predominantly black community, Pittsburgh is a very segregated city, so you could live 10 minutes apart from somebody and have very, very different lived experiences as a black person. I can speak from that personally. I grew up in an environment that was very racist, still is very racist. Um, I ended up having to transfer schools because of that, and there's a lot of racialized violence. There's a lot of organized racialized violence. There's a lot of hate groups here in Pittsburgh that people don't know about, like, outside of the city. But as a young black person, I, I, I often still do struggle feeling safe and feeling a sense of belonging. But I do know that Pittsburgh is a place that we have such strong community ties and family ties that help to ground ground us, because, like I said, um, you can have very isolated experiences and still have that family connection. And I think a lot of young Black people that—especially who I know, almost all of my Black friends have no intentions of staying here in Pittsburgh, including myself, Um, which is sad to say, but we just don't see a future for ourselves economically. And in terms of, like, opportunities, we have a very vibrant art scene, but we can have that, but also not have a place to call home because everything's gentrifying, or you don't want to live, <laughs> like, where I grew up, where it's just, like, you're made to feel like you don't belong. But while, as black communities are actively being destroyed and displaced here, you never feel like you have a place to come back to, so you always feel like you have to leave. You
3: briefly touched on well, not briefly. I mean, you gave your family history, so that's that's <laughs> awesome. But I mean, you you know, you talked about being from like Appalachia and touched on being a Black Pittsburgher, and so I just was wondering how do those identities show up in your work?
7: So I am a proud ninth generation, at least Afro I And I say at least because that's as far as the paper trail goes back. My family came from the mountains of southwestern Virginia and in the Shenandoah Valley, and then I have family from northwest Georgia um, in the Appalachian Mountains as well. And then my family <laughs> on my mother's side settled in southern West Virginia in the coalfields and then came up here to Pittsburgh, where, of course, my father and mother met. <laughs> um, so, I'm here. I feel very grounded in my Appalachian identity, in my afro identity. I very recently got into poetry when I was in the eighth grade. I didn't like poetry beforehand. I wanted to write something to document my experiences with racialized violence and racism. Um, growing up as a black child here in Pittsburgh, I don't know what inspired me to turn to poetry. Like, if you, I could not tell you why I decided to write a poem about that. Um, and ever since then, poetry, for me, has been a way to ground myself and find belonging, because, as I said, I often did not feel like I belonged. And as an Appalachian, I think claiming that— identity as a black person from this region, but also saying, like, hey, I'm from Pittsburgh, this is also about identity, um, helps to diminish a lot of in- invisibility. And I think, for instance, for me, my journey to—not disco- discovering, because I always knew I was from the mountains, you know? Um, so that's always a source of pride. But discovering this Appalachian, Afro-Latin identity, for me, was so revolutionary. I felt so proud and powerful to do that. because. I'm actively going against the narrative of this region, going against what it means to be a black Pittsburgher. or what it means to be, the, to be a black person in America. We're not a monolith. And giving voice to so many in my own lineage who did not have a voice, if that makes sense. Like I said, my family's been here since the 1790s, as far back as I can trace. But for so many of them, up until three or four generations ago, didn't know how to document their story. So, for me, it feels so wonderful to tell their stories, to tell their stories about this region, tell my own story living in this region, and saying, hey, we're here, we've always been here, and we belong, and then sharing that with the world to combat a lot of negative stereotypes about Appalachia, while also roping in Pittsburgh into that and saying, I'm from Pittsburgh. But I'm also an Appalachian, and those aren't conflicting identities. They are intersectional. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that chilled, was that y'all. was powerful. I have right. Listening to him, and, and I feel so proud, and I'm so excited because so many people that we talk to either are like Marimba, is sort of like, oh, we are Appalachians, or like they'll say that it took me so long to kind of really grapple with my Appalachian identity. And so, I am so excited that you're there at 17. You're amazing and impressive, and you probably hear that all the time. I mean, we're so proud of you, and we definitely feel like you're part of— you're, you're one of our—one of us, right? And so, I really feel excited about that. And one of the highlights about being on this roadshow is being able to witness your work in person. And so, we wanted to open up the mic to you to share some poetry or whatever you'd like to share with us.
7: Well, well, then, I guess I'll start with the first poem that's in this packet. This poem was an assignment for my English class. My English teacher basically told us to tell a story of where we're from. And for me, I was like, oh, well, I could just say I'm from Appalachia, but I said, no. I've been saying that. I know I'm from Appalachia, but what else am I from? What experiences made me who I am? So this is called An Idyllic Life Poem. I come from the caustic scent of cleaning chitlins and the olfactory marriages of cologne and perfume. Animal crackers and Sunday school lessons, Jacob and Esau and Mary and Martha, the sweet, sweet blood of Jesus. Friday night football and sweet ice cream with rainbow sprinkles and scraped knees and broken wrists. Vacation Bible school at every church in the county, memory verse reward parties and mud between my toes, baptisms and the like. Summer creeks and dirt under my fingernails, catching fireflies and crickets, making mud pies and picking backyard dandelions for my mother. Cigarette smoke and war stories from my grandfather, my grandmother's prayers and midnight cries. Third grade haikus and spelling bees, paper snowflakes and ornaments made from dried applesauce and cinnamon. Library and museum trips with my mother and all the sports my daddy made me play. Prayer lists and hymn books, mission trips and heathen friends. Playing with Barbies and action figures, kickball and tag with my city friends and house with my cousins he be and done did and code switching before I could read, watching my brother tackle and throw under the shadows of Jackson and Lee in the Blue Ridge Mountains, just 10 minutes from where generations of my family were once enslaved, a fun day at the mall where I got toys and books and almost run over by a racist man who called my mommy a nigger bitch, lunch table antics with my best friend, saying our first cuss words, (laughs) and figuring out what all this sex stuff is everyone's been talking about. Warm soup, beans, and skillet cornbread, and coming out to my grandmother, writing my first poems but never solving an entire geometric proof. Youth group on Wednesday nights, teen church and sanctuary crushes, praying to be fixed. The cantankerously harmonic melody of my youth, R&B and hip-hop and arguments and belt snaps and why do you talk so white? Gospel and country and put some bass in your voice, man up and don't talk with your hands. Avoiding the sun in seventh grade, pouring bleach in my bathwater, being spat on and being pushed downstairs, being called nigger and faggot as if they were my first and last names. Kitchen table life lessons with grandparents who raised me, backyard cookouts with uncles who never judged me, and winter dining room memories of aunties who always loved me. The noxious aroma of funeral homes, formaldehyde and grief. The comforting pain of repasses, socializing with death and desserts. Blue Easter shoots suits, <laughs> and polishing my black leather shoes, Christmas pajamas and home videos, turkey and dressing and drama, thick gloves of hair grease, uncombed heads, and the strangely nostalgic scent of flat irons and chemical relaxers, the ever-present longing for mountain August and church basement family reunions, crocheted blankets and collard greens and bare feet, front porch living and back porch secrets, childhood dreams, teenage fears and tears. From idyllic poems like this, meant to paint picture perfect lives, trying to convince me that my black life is happy and carefree.
1: Wow, wow. Would
7: you like to share another one? Oh, of course. Well, I will then read one of the poems that I submitted in my application to become a national student poet. This poem is a short poem that I wrote at a writing workshop just before the pandemic. And I always tell this story about this poem. When I wrote this poem, it was for an assignment for that workshop, and I was supposed to use all type of punctuation and structure and um, stylistic choices. And for me personally, as a poet, I don't care about what a poem looks like. I care about what it says and what it makes me feel. And I think that should be everyone about poetry. I mean, poems that are written in standardized forms, such as like ballads or Villanelle's Are Beautiful. And they can be powerful, but I don't think we should be constricted to style and form. And I think that's what turns a lot of people away from poetry, because they say, oh, this isn't written correctly or has to have a rhyme scheme or, you know. I think more so we should just write poetry to feel something and to make people feel something. So this poem is something a little bit like that. And like I said, when I submitted this poem to the workshop, I have the original copy. It's like marked up in red ink. Lines are crossed out. They say, no, you did this wrong. You, you have too many syllables in this and that. Something told me to just keep it as is, and I'm so thankful that I did, because once I submitted that, that was the poem that brought me to, like, the place that I am now. And now, every event, I just have to read that. That's kind of like my signature poem. This is called We Went Home to Crystal. We ate fried chicken from the Kroger's in Blue Well, collard greens and cornbread on blue paper plates, vanilla pistachio cake and toothache lemonade in the basement of that little wooden church called Pilgrim. This was my first time coming home. The creek was polluted. The mines were abandoned. We were good-eaten and Lord-praising. I was home. I was safe. They knew me, and they loved me. I belonged to them and the mountains. Crystal, West by God, Virginia, I knew only in memories long gone and never mine. That Sunday, we went home to Crystal. Wow. <laughs>
1: Amazing! Again, I can't believe you're 17, and this is amazing. And mom, I know you're proud. Um, So thank you, thank you so much. I feel like I want to talk more, but you know we 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 have a time limit. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but we'll definitely
2: we'll chat again in a minute. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's give him a round of applause.
7: I can cross this off my bucket list. I've been, Ever since the Black in Appalachia podcast came out, I've been telling everybody about it. And when I told my teacher that I was going to be on it, she's like, finally. <laughs> um, so I'm so happy. Awesome,
1: awesome, awesome. Before we, we go again, we came here looking for Black Pittsburgh and to understand Black life in urban Appalachia. And I am so overwhelmed by the way that you all showed up for us and, and everything that you all like, shared with us. And so I'm so, so thankful for your willingness to come and to be a part of this. And everybody who came out, we're so excited. I feel amazed, but also not surprised by the ways that Black Pittsburgh mirrors Black Knoxville. I'm gonna keep stressing that because I just, it's crazy. And, you know, I really hope that this can be the first step in, in opportunities to build relationships across the region, right? Really build our connections. You know, we can work together. We can learn from each other. We can keep
3: shouting out each other. Really, really, really appreciate it. And so now we're going to do some shameless branding. Um, If you all like what you hear today and want to hear more, be sure to download our podcast wherever podcasts are available and follow us on the social media platforms. We are Black and Appalachia on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we have a TikTok. And any other place out of
2: social media, follow us, please. And you can send us an email at podcast at blackandappalachia.org if you have questions or want to talk to us. And our website to learn more about the Black and Appalachia initiative is blackandappalachia.org. And make sure you subscribe
1: and follow. Leave us a review. Tell somebody to tell somebody about this podcast, y'all. We want to get it out to everybody so everybody can hear and share and join in. And it's a big old party. So share it with somebody. tell somebody
2: to tell somebody else. <laughs> and again, I am in You can find me on Instagram at Sewing Sociologist. And I'm Angela Dennis. I'm on Facebook. I'm as Angela Dennis writes on Instagram and Angela D writes on Twitter. I'm Alana Norwood, and you guys can find some of my work on the Black &
3: Appalachia website.
2: And we just want to shout out our guests again this evening, Miss um, Malayans of the Hill District CDC, Daryl Kinzel with Boom Concepts, and of course, Anthony Wiles, our national student poet. Please follow and support their work on all the platforms. (laughs) And it would be just awful if we didn't give a huge shout
3: out to our podcast team. We have William Isom II. He's the director of the Black and Appalachia Initiative. Chris Smith. He is our senior producer. And Joseph Firo... I love Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, Joseph. I'm sorry. I did you brother. I'm sorry. But he is our sound engineer and he is making sure that you guys can hear us well and all of this is being recorded. So thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. And also shout out to the August Wilson African American
1: Cultural Center for hosting us today, for your staff, for accommodating all of our needs. We really, really appreciate it. And of course, thank you to our audience for showing up and coming out on a pandemic night to witness this very first live show of the Black and Appalachian Podcast. Make sure that you are subscribed so you can hear this. It's a wrap. That's it. Yeah, it's a wrap. (laughs)